once again to a novel evening. I'm Danny. You can find me over on Instagram as at a novel evening podcast and the same on TikTok. Hello. Um, I apologise now because uh, the seasonal germs have got me and uh, I think I sound pretty horrendous. Um, so my apologies for having to listen to me like re my way through this. Um, but hello, welcome. I hope you're getting in the festive spirit because at the time of recording, we're in the build up to Christmas. We're in December. It's all going on and I'm very excited to chat to this evening's guest um, all about his novel Flight or Fancy which is a look at the real life inspiration behind Brideshead Revisited. Um, I cannot wait to ask him about how he discovered this tale, um, you know the story behind it, his interest in this story. Um, I am, I have no idea about the gentleman this is about I know nothing about Harry Clifton. I want to know more. Tell me the story of this man. And I have so many questions for David Slattery Christie, who is going to join me on tonight's podcast. Uh, so let's check it out. So a huge hello to David. Hello. Hi, Danny. Lovely to be here. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. And first question, are you ready for Christmas? Because as we're recording, it's on the horizon. Um, I'm I'm actually very organised this year for um uh, for once actually, but I I am kind of ahead of myself this year. So yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm kind of feeling a bit smug at the moment because I've got most things done now. Oh, do you know what? I'm feeling the same. I'm really like everything is wrapped. My freezer is full. Like all I've got left <laughs> is the veg. So unless the yeah. veg goes wrong, right? Yeah. Well, and I well, can't get not, in. Not much we can do about that on the day, is there? Really? So, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've got the pigs in blankets and that's really all that matters. <laughs> right. Oh. <laughs> and look, thank you so much for coming to join and chat all about your book. So remind me when the book came into the world because it's out there already, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, officially it was released on the 16th of November. Um, so it's out there at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's it's available now. So that's How does uh, that good. feel that it's out there in the world? Um. um well, it's always a, a lovely feeling, really, and and it's a feeling that never diminishes, in a sense, because uh, I think the first time you hold a physical copy of a hardback book that's yours, it it kind of it never loses that sort of moment of um, a bit of a thrill, really. I suppose that's yeah, because there's a lot of work goes into it to get to that stage. Not only the writing, but all the other kind of sort of design layout cover design so it's it's quite a complex process really but it's uh, but it never loses its thrill um to, to to hold a book uh in your hand for the first time yeah so and with this book i really i really hope that people um will find it of interest really um because it's a fascinating story and it's it's linked to one of the most famous sort of books of all time brideshead revisited or at least to its author Evelyn War. So um, it has an element of, um, it kind of takes us to a land um, that has a lot of, uh, there's a lot of truth in the characters, but uh, it, it brings it to life in terms of, um, I wanted, I decided to do it in fiction because that way I could make these people have conversations and uh, put them in situations and explore what their relationships might have been. Because, of course, we don't know that. We can only go off the bare historic facts, really, to link something together. 
Yeah, that's very, very true. And look, mm. first and foremost for listeners, tell us about Flight or Fancy. Give us the lowdown on this book. Right. OK, so Flight or Fancy, it's uh, it explores the eccentric and errant heir to the Clifton estate, Harry, and the possibility that he might have been the inspiration for Sebastian Flight in War's um, novel Brideshead Revisited. Um, it, we do know um, factually that um, Evelyn War used to visit Lidham Hall, which was Harry Clifton's family's uh, uh, Georgian manor in Lancashire in the 1930s. So there's definitely sort of a relationship connection between War and the family. But also Harry Clifton went to Oxford in the 20s, as did Evelyn War. And Harry uh, studied modern history, I discovered, at Christchurch. And of course, this is where we first meet Sebastian Flight in Brideshead. So all these little details started adding up and uh, made me think that uh, Harry's mother, Violet Clifton, when Brideshead was uh, published in 1945, she was absolutely furious with Evelyn War because she recognised Harry in Sebastian Flight, but also recognised herself in Lady Marchmain. So um, the plot thickened, really, so that the whole thing has come from that. So the book really is about exploring and looking at all the facts and all the interesting things about, you know, the situations that they got in. And uh, Evelyn War actually described the Cliftons of Lytham as all tearing mad when he, wow. wrote, uh, when he was staying there. He wrote to Lady Asquith to let her know that uh, he was there and he thought they were all mad and... Uh, uh, but they served in the finest food and champagnes. So it kind of, the whole story in the whole book is based on exploring this sort of relationship or potential relationship that went on that actually um, made uh, Harry Clifton's mother really believe that Sebastian Flight was based on Harry. It's intriguing. And what was it that drew you to the, to tell this story? Why did you want to, to look into this and tell his story? Well, first, I mean, I love Brideshead Revisited. I really do think it's a book that everybody should read because I, I think it gives us a fascinating insight into that kind of final uh, stages of um, the, um, the, the aristocracy of, of this country, really. Um, so it's interesting from that point of view. But then when I discovered um, Lydham Hall is only open to the public a few years ago for the right. first time ever. Um, and Harry Clifton was the last of the Cliftons or last of the, the Cliftons who owned the estates because he literally in his lifetime, once he inherited from his father in 1928, he literally squandered everything. Wow. In, in his lifetime, he went through the equivalent of £70 million. So, and all the lands and all the uh, estates, he, he literally sold off and um, there was nothing left, really, by the time he died in the 1970s. Um, and he's a, for me, he's a fascinating character because we all associate aristocrats of certain periods of being quite eccentric but I think Harry really would be um, eccentric, 
even to the eccentric aristocrats right. because he completely went um, on a on a course of destruction, really. And I do wonder, having sort of done a lot more research about him, wonder whether it was almost deliberate because he didn't want anybody to have to go through what he went through because he was the eldest child, he was the heir, and the, the responsibility and expectation that was heaped on him, I think he found quite difficult. Yeah. Because really he was quite um, an artistic and uh, um, a, a bit of a sort of, wanted to be a poet, a, a little bit literary. He He kind of had aspirations that, were way beyond his abilities but mm. having said that he he lived in this dream world but maybe that was a way of uh, coping with the situation he found himself in and i mean he had the sad thing is he had the means to perhaps explore things in a different way i know obviously you've got the pressure of the title but when you have money like that yeah. surely there must have been ways for him to be able to explore the things he wanted to do in a healthier way well, yeah, he kind of he didn't hold back. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, he 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 was very. When I think, you know, it's it's hard to describe somebody in in just a few sentences, really. But to give you an idea of his character and the kind of things that he kind of got involved in, and um, once he inherited, he decided to have a permanent suite at the Ritz in London. As you do, <laughs> and as you do, and but also. Um, a, a friend was there having lunch with him one day, and he and he was saying to him, "Well, of course, I do have, um, I do have another suite at Claridge's," and his friend said, "Well, if you've got a permanent suite here, what? Why on earth have you got another suite at Claridge's?" And he said, "Well, if I just go, decide to go for a walk down Park Lane, it means I've got somewhere to go." So this is the kind <laughs> of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, it's hard to even fathom, isn't it? It's, hard it's quite to... <laughs> sad, right? Yeah, but once a week at the Ritz, he he uh, every single week, uh, one evening, he would dine with the White Goddess in the restaurant at the Ritz, and the White Goddess was his spiritual and financial advisor, and <clears throat> he would sit there talking to her all evening. The only problem was nobody else could see her. Oh, gosh. I mean, it makes you question sort of mental health as well. What was Indeed, happening? Indeed, yeah. What but, was but I there? think what's more, what amuses me more about that situation, even though it's not particularly, obviously there, there, is, a, there is something going on here that is, is kind of on the mental health spectrum, really. But the fact that all the, all the staff and the waiters at the Ritz played along yeah. and pretended this woman existed and served a meal to her and pulled a chair out for her and spoke to her. Um, and that kind of shows you what money can do. Yeah, it is the mm. testament to the power of money. No, no. And uh, he was he was so profligate with wasting money and being conned out of money that there was a point in the 1930s where his mother, on two occasions, attempted to have him certified. Wow. Because it was she felt that the estates would be safer with his younger brother Michael. Um but there was that no doctor would sign the papers to do it. Oh. So, yeah. Uh, oh, so, it's a sad story. And I mean, I just can't that amount of money that it, it's such a huge figure in today's hmm. money. 
and to be able to imagine how you even go about squandering that level of money. Well, he was a gambler. Oh. Um, he, he he was also, I mean, he did invest um, in uh, films. Um, he was a great fan of um, Edgar, Allan, Edgar Allan Poe's oh. work. And um, the, he invested a lot of money in a film with Brian Desmond Hurst, who was producing, directing. Um, and... Uh, of course, there was never any comeback on this money. He always lost the money. Oh. But he, he used to stay at the, the casinos in uh, Monte Carlo. And he'd have, there'd be five or six people in the lobby wanting to make appointments with him. And everybody knew that all these people were there because he was an easy touch. He would give them money. In fact, there's an interesting story that at the Ritz, Brian Desmond Hurst went there to have a meeting with Harry and um, he saw him talking to this chap and when he actually got to speak to him, he said, why were you talking to so-and-so? And Harry said, well, um, I've just invested like £30,000 in, uh, in his business venture. And he said, well, you do know that he's a con man, don't you, Harry? And he said, oh, yes, darling, of course I do. But everybody deserves a second chance. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so oh. th this is kind of what you're up against, really. So the fact that he was um, uh, he was quite infamous in his own time. So um, mm -hmm. the, the Evelyn War connection makes it even more interesting, really, for me. And the more you discover about Harry and ironically how he ended up really um because how sebastian flight ends up in brideshead was not that far removed from where harry ended up really uh, quite desolate broke living in a seedy place in brighton that was owned by another soothsayer spiritualist um wow. and probably his his money bought that hotel in brighton for her do you know what i mean so yeah. so you can see why his mother may have came to that conclusion and was so angry with the war when Brideshead was published. And was Harry still alive when Brideshead was published? Or he he was, he yeah. Actually, was. Harry outlived them all. Wow, no He outlived his mother, but he outlived all his siblings um, and he outlived uh, Evelyn War as well. He died do we know what his response, his reaction was to Brideshead? Well, it's it's like they never spoke again once it was published. Wow. Um, that says quite a lot as well, doesn't it? I feel yes, like that speaks yeah. volumes. There, there was literally no communication whatsoever after Brideshead was published. So, yeah. It's interesting, Harry's sister Daffodil, uh, which she was a very interesting character, and she's a character I bring to life in the book because um, she was called Easter Daffodil because she was born on an Easter Monday. So oh, her wow. father thought it would be quite interesting to call her that. Um, but she was a very interesting character in, in her own right, because um, and very independent as well, and a bit off the wall like Harry, because uh, she ended up in the, in the 30s, she ended up eloping and marrying uh, one of the... Um, uh, well, she did a Lady Chatterley, to be honest. You know. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, she married the on the Scottish estate at Islay, the Clifton's owned. There was a, a, a factor or um, an estate uh, a gamekeeper, or they call them factors in Scotland. Right. Um, uh, and she 
when she was 11, he came to work there and he was in his 20s and she made her mind up that she was going to marry him. Oh, wow. So as soon as she became of age in the mid 30s, um, she decided, right, she was going to marry Gerald and she ran off with a gamekeeper. <laughs> so that caused a bit of a stir as well. But she's a brilliant character, very, very interesting. And I think in the in the context of the book and the story, um, it's interesting how um, she she is that sensible. She can see what's going on and she can see what's happening when all around her are, are kind of are in this kind of turmoil, really. So, yeah, I love Daffodil. She was great. And I, love I mean, a fantastic name as well. And what a story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were quite a scandalous family then, really. Well, yeah, they, they certainly this last generation, because, of course, um, once Harry died in the 70s, um, his brother Michael um, had uh, some children, but there was nothing left for them to, for them to inherit. So I think he, he wasn't broke, Harry, when he died, but he had less than £30,000 left. Wow. Out of all that, yeah. But everything had gone, all the estates in Scotland... Uh, the estates in Lytham and all the land, because most of the a lot the Cliftons owned a lot of the land right through to Blackpool, um, uh, in Lancashire as well. And there's lots of names that you um, you associate Talbot Square, and of course Harry's father was called John Talbot Clifton, um, Clifton Drive. So the, there's lots of references references to the family still, but now the Lytham Hall, which is a beautiful Georgian hall is now open to the public. And I'd, I'd really say, if you can go and see it, please do, because it, it's worth it. It's it's absolutely fantastic. It's a beautiful place. Um, and I mean, this, did that, did that stay in the hands of the family, that particular hall, or was that also lost? No, no, that was lost as well. Everything was gone, yeah. The, it, the, it was actually repossessed by uh, Guardian Royal Exchange, who are a, a, like a mortgage insurance company, um, oh, and Harry owed money to them. So in the 60s, they did a deal with him where they would um, they would repossess the hall and all its lands and kind of give him a, a, and write off any of his debts and give him a small amount of money to go away with. So that's basically... And, and they used it as their headquarters and head office for many, many years. Uh, so it was never open to the public then. Um, it's only in the last 15 years since a trust bought it um, from the people who bought out the Guardian um, and the trust bought it to, to save it and it's uh, it's slowly been sort of brought back to life and is now fully open um, to, for you to go and, and look round and, and it's a beautiful Georgian Hall so well worth a visit. Sounds beautiful. I mean what a humiliation as well though to lose your ancestral mm. home is just i can't imagine <clears throat> well as i said i do reading between the lines i sometimes wonder if if he almost did this deliberately yeah. as i said because he didn't want anybody um to have that kind of expectation and pressure placed on them you know um, i'm intrigued what his younger brother would have felt i mean whether he wanted you know whether he wanted that role there well, was there was a point in the 1920s when, he's, when Harry's father was still alive. Uh, Harry's father died in 1928. But before that, 
and Harry had actually asked his father and begged the estate manager to try and help him because he felt that his younger brother Michael would be a better heir to the estates and more suited to it than he would. And he asked if there was any way that it could be, he could be cut out and the estates could go to his younger brother. But his father wouldn't, didn't, wouldn't have any of it. And uh, also there would have been complications with um, uh, death duties and it would have made the taxes a lot higher if that had happened. But Harry could see really that he, he wasn't suited to it and he, he want he did so he did try to, to kind of yeah. pass it off. Um but th this kind of system is quite brutal really. It um it's very um it's very rigid and it doesn't um accommodate for, for changes like that. So but yeah. so in the end everything ended up being lost, which was very oh, sad really. And when you were writing the novel, how was it kind of treading the line between fiction and, and fact? How did you find kind of weaving in fictionalised moments with the kind of true story of Harry? Because you're writing about a real person. and uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and that, that that is very clear in the way I've structured the story. Because, but, you know, I had two choices, really. I, I could either write this, this in a way where it was just sort of... Um, uh, biographical facts and you know this this bit of information and that bit of information but I felt that it deserved to be brought to life yeah. and the only way I could do that was to take these characters take the factual things that I discovered about them all and actually weave it into a story that allowed me to put them in situations and have conversations and explore their characters and um, and bring them to life really for the reader because I felt that would make the story more interesting for people because you can you can read it on many levels really you can read it either as a uh, just a novel or you you can look in and discover the other side of things and and maybe carry on and and do look into areas that you found of interest yourself so it gives you the options, really. But there are sections in the book where I do talk about, you know, current, you know, what's happening currently and, um, you know, what the estate on ILA in Scotland is like now. It's actually a ruin. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's a bit of past and present element to the story as well. Um, but, I mean, you do learn an awful lot about Harry and his life and, um, and how he kind of... Uh, and the adventures he went on, you know. Uh, and, of course, he owned two Fabergé eggs as well, which uh, he bought on a women auction in London in the 30s, 1937. So he bought two of the famous imperial Fabergé eggs. Um, uh, and that's for... how you get through your money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's he, how you do he'd it. Actually, he'd actually married an American socialite um, right. uh, called uh, Lillian Griswold. Um, now... Uh, they say that uh, because they were both um, drinkers, that they, they, Harry had gone on a drunken binge, and, and one day Lillian in, himself woke up in a suite at the Ritz um, and sobered up and realised they were married. So they, they almost married by um, misadventure, if you will. Oh <laughs> um, my goodness! But of course, he, but to, because she had a fancy for it and they were up for auction. 
he went and bought these two Fabergé eggs and uh, um, yeah so uh, I mean the marriage didn't last it was a bit of a disaster really I mean uh, that's all explored in the book as well um, but uh, interestingly after he divorced they weren't married for very long uh, a couple of years <laughs> but she went back to America and um, uh, and after the war if anybody ever asked him Harry always declared himself as a bachelor, as if he'd, as if it, as if that had never existed. So, so that's another interesting kind of uh, uh, little story as well. But it's all it talked about in the book. So, fantastic. And I just, I love the fact that you've delved into this life. I mean, was the research quite? Was there a lot to access? Was it quite easy, or did you have to really kind of dig for information about Harry? I don't know how much would be out there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I had the people at Lytham Hall were absolutely fantastic. I will have to say. I mean, they helped me tremendously, and and anything that I, you know, there, there was a couple of things that uh, books that had Harry had written on poetry, really things, but they give you an insight into his mind, and they have a lot of information there in the archive that they shared with me, um, and. Um, with the, at, at, at the point I started this, they weren't quite sure. They knew he went to Oxford, but they didn't really know um, where where he went or what he studied. But interestingly, um, I, I had a couple of friends who were fellows at Oxford, so right. they did a bit of digging for me and came out. And we did. That's when we discovered that Harry had gone to read modern history at Christchurch, um, and had rooms at Christchurch, which is, of course, as I said before, where. We, we first meet Sebastian Flight in Brideshead. Um, so all these little things started uh, sort of dropping into place, which was quite interesting. So, yeah, it was fascinating. And um, there was also, we knew that he'd um, he died in Brighton in 1978, but we weren't sure where. So um, I kind of sent off for some sort of death certificates and yeah. uh, different bits of paperwork. And we discovered that he, he was living in this... Uh, uh, Emeris Hotel in Brighton oh, when he died, which um, was a real dive. You know, oh, it wasn't a, a pre pretty seedy place. Um, so, yeah, all these things came to light. But sometimes I think when you're... Uh, th this is, might sound a bit off the wall, really, uh, Danny, but I think when you... Sometimes I think a story chooses you. No, I... I think you're not the first author to say that. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it just, it just something in your head and something the way your brain works, it's almost like something higher than that takes over and you kind of, it leads you along the, the, the path that you end up with. And sometimes you read back through things and you, you, you really don't know where it comes from, really. It's, it's like it's come from another place. That's the only way I can describe it, really. But it's been such an interesting journey for me. And I have quite an affection for Harry now um, because I think um, up until this point, perhaps, um, the odd people that knew anything just would always say, oh, that awful Harry Clifton which is very sort of simplistic, really. And I think yeah. that comes from the fact that he lost everything. Mm. But when you look behind it more, it just, it's so sad. Yeah, I feel... I can, as you're telling a story, that's the main <laughs> thing I'm feeling. I think, what a, a sad yeah. life, really. Yeah. And it's a kind and... of, that adage, money doesn't buy happiness. 
No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's very, very true in Harry's case. But I suppose in in his kind of strange, otherworldly way, by doing what he did and um, kind of giving money away and 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 kind of like uh, investing in all these dodgy schemes that he never got a return on, um, maybe it was his way of trying to create happiness in other people. You know, by giving them a chance to explore their aspirations and dreams. There was an interesting um, article written about him um, in the in the kind of nineteen late nineteen sixties by a journalist at, from the Evening Standard who um, wrote about him because he happened to be in Monte Carlo at the casino, and he was saying that and Harry Clifton would wander around with his uh, and talk to strangers like he'd known them all his life. And to people he'd known all his life, he would treat like strangers. And he would wander about and give away priceless pieces of jewellery to total strangers. Just, it's very sad. <laughs> but as I said, maybe that was his way because his life had been quite pressured and sad when he was growing up because he had a quite difficult relationship with his father. Yeah. Um, maybe this was his way of trying to help other people be happy. I like that idea. And also, you know, he didn't want the money. So perhaps getting it out, giving it to others did bring him sure. joy in his own way. Yeah. Oh, so like it, it gave him pleasure to help other people. And, you know, maybe he thought, well, I've been really fortunate, you know, uh, in life and other people are less fortunate. So maybe, you know, I can do this and if I kind of get rid of everything, then no one will have to go through what I went through yeah. again. Um, so, yeah, I, it, w when you look into it and the more you understand, the, the kind of the more possibilities there are as to why he did what he did. But it's ever fascinating, Danny. And oh, it's it sounds as you're telling me, I was completely unfamiliar and I've already formed a kind of a picture and an idea and, and an empathy for this man. Yeah. And it, you know, I'm intrigued by him. And I'm I'm wondering if maybe he might make an appearance at your novel evening. Maybe. Um well, yes, I mean that's uh, I did obviously I thought of Harry. I thought he could um uh he, he could be a guest, um, along with Evelyn War, but um I thought I might throw in a couple of other things because obviously um uh when you kind of think about guests at a dinner party, well. You know, the list can be endless, really. It really they? can. For the <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, um, firstly, I'm I... sure Harry would agree. Yeah, yeah. Where you're going to hold your event is very important. Yeah, well, I think I'd actually hold it at Lytham Hall, actually. I'd, I'd have it in the gold room at Lytham Ooh. Hall, which is a, a beautiful room. And uh, um, I've been there to events. And uh, it's, uh, it's quite a magical place, actually, the gold room at Lytham Hall. So I would definitely hold it there. And Harry and Evelyn Wall would definitely be on the on the list. Um, Very intriguing having them back in the same room. Mm, for sure. I mean, it would be lovely to ask them uh, um, a few more questions, really. Um, obviously. See if you were on the right mark with things as well. But very interesting for you. Mm, yeah. And <laughs> as I was the Ivan Avella consultant on uh, Gossard Park, which was Robert Altman's Oscar-winning film. Um, and I subsequently went on to write a biography on Ivan Novello. I think I'd have Ivan Novello as a guest as well. Oh, 
okay. What would you yeah. want to talk to Ivan about? What what would you discuss with him? Is there anything that you would really want to know? Um, I think probably it would be interesting to um, to discover. Obviously, Ivan Novello was a gay man, but in his time, in the first half of the 20th century, that's something you had to hide away, really, um, apart from to your nearest and dearest. So um, I'd like to talk to him about that and how he handled it, really. Yeah. How difficult that was or or how it, it changed the way he did things. Did it influence his music? Did it, uh, you know, um, did it inspire him to create? Did it give him a drive to create? I think that's, that's so interesting. yeah. Because I always think with Nabella... Sorry, um, carry on. No, no, it's with, with Nabella's music, I always feel there's a slight melancholy underneath yeah. it somewhere. And, and that ties in with Harry, really, doesn't it? <laughs> There is a, and, there and, is and, a sense of melancholy. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, but also such yeah. talent there as well. And you know, I think the saddest bit kind of Ivan Novello is like you say having to hide something away from yourself when yeah. you are so talented and but so does, incredible that you can't be who you truly are. But I wonder whether that that maybe gave him a drive that had things been like they are now, yeah. uh, that he wouldn't have had. That's, That's kind of an interesting thing, yeah. I think the other one as well, one of my... And I'd love to throw um, Queen Mary in the mix. Oh, which <laughs> Queen Mary is this? There's a few. This is Queen Mary, uh, George V's wife. Okay. What's your reasoning yeah. behind that? Well, Queen Mary came from, a, 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 like, the tech um, yeah. uh, fa uh, family, which was a... Uh, a noble family from Germany, but uh, she was brought up in England because they lived here really in exile in a way. Mm. Um, so she, she kind of, I think she would, um, there are, there are elements of her life and how she grew up and how they had to make a, a different life for themselves. Um, and it was pure fluke really that she ended up marrying George V um, because it was all arranged, of course because she was supposed to marry his brother who died. Um, but uh, uh, she, when he died, she was moved on to the next brother who was the heir to the throne. But I think she would be interesting to talk to because um, I would love to talk to her about her sense of duty because everything she did was for duty and it was unquestioned that you did your duty. And that fascinates me that somebody can have that such um, a strong sense of that within them that it overrides their personal feelings and how they want to live their life. Yeah. So it'd be fascinating to see what she had to say about Harry. That's <laughs> uh, true. But I then mean... I don't think she'd be particularly um, enamoured <laughs> with the Harry that we have in the royal family at the moment. No, so you know, you it's that thing where I think especially at that time, duty to kind of throne and God was kind of all-encompassing. Sure. You yeah. know, crown and country and, and your religion and your faith, that was that was everything. Sure. And then kind of family and really yourself was, was never on that list. What you wanted, and it was seen, I guess, seen as quite selfish then. Well, yes, it, 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 well it was irrelevant, Yeah. <laughs> basically. You know, and, and in a sense, this is what... Um, this is what happened to Harry 
because mm. he was the eldest born son he had all this expectation and and uh sort of duty and and what he had to do thrust upon him and he had no choice but to go with it so it, yeah it would be interesting that would and be he an did interesting rebel i think harry rebelled in his own way yeah sure yeah but it's chalk and cheese isn't it to queen mary it's it would be interesting to see what she would make of him really I suppose ooh, that's, that could be, yeah. yeah oh mm. that might be a little bit of debate yeah. going on well i like i like a bit of um um you know if you get everybody that's all um lovely and charming um it, it makes for a dull evening sometimes <laughs> but i think if you throw a bit of um controversy in the mix i think that can help it to be a very interesting evening that's which true. Is what i think we healthy want. debate is a good thing yeah. as well you know as no, long no. as it's respectful and sure there's no harm is is there anyone else coming um well i'd i'd, I'd have to have thomas hardy there okay that because... is an interesting man to throw in the mix as well mm. well yes because he was all about love mm. everything thomas hardy did was about love and it I really want to ask him, uh, or the question or, or I'd like to ask him and talk to him about was um, that he never wanted to be, um, uh, he didn't want to be buried in uh, Westminster Abbey. He wanted to be buried uh, with his first wife um, in Dorset. So after he died, they compromised. So they, um, it was his, his heart was buried with his first wife, I think. Yeah. And his body went to uh, Westminster Abbey, um, which I think was a very poignant thing. Yeah. But it's interesting because he never he had a really fractious relationship with his first wife. Yeah. So why this obsession to want to be with her in death? It's very found interesting. that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Again, is that almost a sense of duty? Is that almost a sense of that's the correct thing to do i mean sure i grew yeah. up very close to max gate um so we used to visit a lot we did a lot of childhood trips it's a beautiful right. place as well yeah. i have to say it's it's such a romantic place max gate i think if you you know when you visit it it's it's ripe for a romantic story sure yeah and... i've been i have been there and, and i have yeah. to say i was very lucky because i went on a day when um it was um I was invited to go along and it wasn't open generally. So I got to look around in a different way, really. Um, so, yeah, but I, I totally agree with you. It's like time has stood still. Yes. In a sense. And you can feel, um, I mean, Thomas Hardley was deeply romantic. True, probably yeah. romantic in an unrealistic way in, in, <laughs> in, in, in some of his um, sort of character development. But a way in which you just want it wished it would be like that if that makes and i sense. think as a man of his time he wrote women mm. so intelligently fabulously yeah I yeah agree. yeah he was no. a real forward thinker for a man of his time when it in came fact, to women i think his, his women in mm. many many ways are far more interesting than his male character yes absolutely yeah, agree no um and the other one that i've got on the list is mildred aldrich Oh, I'm not now, familiar with that name. So explain, tell right. me who Mildred is. Okay, Mildred Aldrich was uh, an American from Boston and she was a friend of Gertrude Stein. Ah. Um, and she lived in Paris in the first part of the 20th century. And she became a little bit poorly in her sort of late 50s and decided to retire. Um, so Gertrude Stein and a few of her other friends 
got together and created a pension for her to give her a bit of an income. Um, and they bought, um, she bought a house um, called La Crest, um, overlooking the Marne Valley in France. And she moved in in the June of 1914. Now, of course, the First World War broke out in the August of 1914. And she didn't, she was advised to leave and maybe go back to America, but she didn't. She stayed in this little house on this hill and she ended up during the First World War helping all the uh, British, American and uh, French soldiers. And um, and at one point she was actually, um, the they were pushed back and, and she was briefly in German territory, but she never flinched and she never gave in and she stayed throughout the war and the French uh, gave her the Legion d'honneur in the 1920s because wow. of her bravery. Um, she was also a, a, a journalist and travel writer for the New York Times and the Boston Herald um, but they thought she was a man uh, and ah. when the editor came over to Paris uh, this is before the First World War uh, he wanted to meet um uh, this guy who's doing these fantastic articles. So she decided to brave it out and she went to the office and met him and said, look, you know, my name is Mildred. You know, I'm not this pseudonym I've been using. And the tragedy of that is, is she never wrote for them again. And I think oh, that was, wow. that really moved me actually, because I thought that that's, you know, really, really terrible that she could, they could want her articles because she was so good when they thought she was a man. But the minute they discovered she was a woman, that was it. So you know, I need to talk to her about that. would disagree with that would be Thomas Hardy. He would have something to say about that. Sure, yeah. Well, that's why I thought maybe that would be an interesting one to put in the mix, really. Yeah. Mm. And the last one, because I couldn't leave him out, if I have to say, and that's, I'd like Charles Dickens to come and make an appearance. You're because not the I first every, person. <laughs> I think every one of those people I've mentioned would be thrilled to meet Charles Dickens. <laughs> As Wouldn't would that I, be interesting to watch these people a little bit starstruck with Dickens? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I mean, sometimes if you throw something a little bit different in there. I've done, but I think almost I'd like him to be a late arrival, a surprise guest. Oh, I know. like that. So, yes, give him <laughs> a little surprise. Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, I like that idea. And this is usually where I ask if there's anybody you don't want to show up. Anybody I don't want to show up. Mm. I think the, the person I wouldn't want to show up would be Harry's father, John Talbot Clifton. I, from what you've told me, I think <laughs> that's very fair. Yeah, because it wouldn't be fair to Harry for the night. No. Yeah. I'm not saying I wouldn't like to meet him separately at another occasion. But I wouldn't do that. This is not the one. That wouldn't be fair. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. I think this has been a really interesting evening. I've been thinking about how these people would interact. And I think you've got some very intriguing conversation, maybe a bit of debate. Yeah. Um, I I like it. That's always healthy. Bit of debate. Yeah. Yeah, It's very different as well. I think this is a night of good conversation. Sure. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's and in, in. in a, in a kind of way, when, you, when you're when doing something like this, you have all these people in your head 
for quite a long time while you're creating this. Um, and I have to say, a lot of these people in my head were quite exhausting, really. <laughs> Uh, but very enjoyable, yeah. <laughs> You've got them time. out now, they're free. Yeah, yeah, no, they're gone now, yeah, no. They're, they're down on paper now. There we go. That's it, they're immortalised. Look, yeah. before I let you go and enjoy yeah. the rest of your evening, I have to ask if you are reading anything at the moment. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm revisiting this, and it's A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. Oh. It's a very magical account of... Dylan Thomas's own childhood and a, and of a Christmas day in a small Welsh town uh, with the neighbours and with his family and you know with his auntie and uncles falling asleep after dinner and it's just absolutely lovely and for this time of year as well it, it's a great read I know we, we all tend to reread Christmas Carol uh, because that's enduring and ever fascinating. Yeah. In my but case, this... I just watched the Muppets version, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is just, it, it really is lovely. It's enchanting and it draws you in and it takes you to another world, really. And it, it, it it's very comforting, I think. So A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. Oh, beautiful. And do you know what? That's what Christmas is all about as well as those memories as a kid. That's what yeah. you hope to instill and that's what you hope to keep recreating. It's really about that, yeah. isn't it? And they're very special, those. We all have childhood memories and we all, you know, things that we think about, you know, this time of year. And obviously people that are no longer with us, we think about, you know, so it's quite an emotional time, really. But there's a lot of joy as well. And all those childhood memories, I think at this time of the year, they really do they help us in a way I don't even think we understand. I absolutely agree. And David, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so, so much for coming to chat with me all about the book. I, I'm sure it's doing fantastically and I wish you all the best with your next endeavours, be it plays or be it novels. <laughs> you are fantastic. Thank you, Thank much, you so much. Yeah, it's been it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Novel Evening. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please remember to go over and rate, subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts and check us out on Instagram at A Novel Evening Podcast and over on TikTok under the same name and we'll see you next week. Bye bye.